0: And gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. We are ready to take off on our study with the twins of the gazelle and of course you know we've been doing the footsteps of messiah series and you know much of it is prophecy it's it can be quite apocalyptic but i think it's important that we study the song of songs because so much of the the material in there it's connecting us with a time period that marks the end of israel's exile so What I want to do today, again, is we're still dealing with the footsteps of Messiah, still trying to decode some of this prophecy in the Song of Songs, but something that our students enjoyed the last couple of weeks was working on some biblical study techniques. And I know that sounds pretty dry, pretty much dry as dust. I mean, who even invented the word hermeneutics? Who really wants to learn study techniques? Did anybody sign up for that class in school, study techniques? That is it's probably crickets chirping in that class. Nobody wants to learn how to study unless you're failing a subject. And then you don't necessarily want to know how to study. You just don't want to fail the subject. It's one of those things that it's evidence of your true nerdship. If you're a person who enjoys learning study techniques. So I hope there's a few nerds out there like me. You enjoy learning those techniques because then you enjoy applying them. And then you feel like you waste less time in your scripture studying, chasing after, I don't want to say silly ideas, but just you know, misplaced ideas the, where your brain's not really trained to think in a disciplined way. And you might run after this idea or that idea. And then at the end of your study period, like, what did I just accomplish here? Did I go anywhere? I mean, <laughs> who wants to waste an hour if you could be internalizing something of the word for an hour? And that's what study techniques do. They, they help you to spend less chasing time and and not that you know if we all find ourselves chasing rabbits going down rabbit trails because this word will remind us of this word which will remind us of another word and then that gets us distracted when we look that word up and then there's another word and where we looked up and that leads us over here and we can come back at the end of an hour and say well I went nowhere but it was still thrilling um and and you know if you have the time to do that if you have all the time in the world, Um, to just chase after things and then, you know, at the end of it, not really feel like you came to a complete understanding, but you enjoyed the investigation, by all means do it. But if you have limited time, if you don't have a lot of time to waste going down the rabbit trails, and you really want to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible, that's where biblical study tools will help, especially as you're studying prophecy. And so something I encourage you to do is keep your own glossary. Of prophecy symbols. There are certain symbols that are going to mean certain things. Now, here's the caution it has to make sense in context. Just like we've learned before, like day can represent an era of Torah going out from Jerusalem where Israel is settled in Israel, night can represent a period of exile where Israel is not settled in Israel, there is no temple functioning on the Temple Mount. And Israel is out there among the nations. That's not an absolute. It has to make sense in context. Sometimes day is day, sometimes night is night. Sometimes you don't need to read more into it than what is there. Um, you know, we can find a biblical symbol and we'll latch onto it, and then we try to force it into every single use of the word, and that's not gonna be helpful. You have to be flexible enough to say, let me read the whole context before i make up my mind uh or bring it into a bible study you know that's always a good idea if you if you bring it into a bible study and you get other heads around it and you say this is what i'm reading here i think this is what this symbolizes and this opens up this new significance then those that are sitting around will either go hey yeah that's pretty cool because it's in the context or the people sitting around might be saying um I don't see how you got to there if that's where you started I don't I don't know how you got from A to B and much less to Z so <laughs> sometimes things only make sense in our own minds and it's time to put that jar up on the shelf for a while until we can come back and more biblically intelligently unpack it in a way that either makes better sense or makes better sense to others where we we have a better uh way of explaining what we think we found Um, so I want to show you a couple things today. And one is to show you the uh the twin principle, the twin principle, the pairs. Um, we'll go over that. But there's another technique uh that came up in class last week. It's called an ellipsis, an ellipsis. And I didn't think that much about it because it's just one of those things that you learn if you take a class in hermeneutics and it's it's not a huge thing, you just need to know that it's there because it does affect translations. And in times past, when things have been translated into a new language, if there is an ellipsis and, and you know what an ellipsis is, it's remember when you're writing a sentence and you don't want to write the whole thing or you don't want to write the whole paragraph, you'll you'll quote the part you do want. To refer to, and then you'll put dot dot dot. And that lets the reader know: hey, this is not the whole context. This is just the you know the part I want to quote right here. This is just the part that's meaningful to what I'm saying. But there is a dot 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 that comes after this. And if you wanted the full context of it, that tells them to go find it. That you're not trying to hide it, you're not trying to cherry-pick something and pull it out of context. So, when there's something that's missing, you call that an ellipsis. And um, the ellipsis, again, is a, a real stumbling block for translators. Because for the translator, they might believe they know what's missing from the literal text and supply something that's not there. Now, that sounds really evil when I say it. It's not evil unless it is evil, unless like somebody did that on purpose. Um, A lot of times it's out of ignorance, but sometimes it's very useful because when you go from language to language, you cannot go word for word. It won't make any sense. It won't make any sense at all. If you try to translate from one language to the other word for word, because they're different languages, you can't do that. That's not the way languages work. Like um, in, um, in Hebrew, you might say mayishlach to somebody now that means what is there to you well that doesn't make any sense in english what is there to you but in its proper context if i were trying to explain that to an english speaker i would say well this lady looks a little unwell or a little unhappy and what i just asked her is what is wrong with you <laughs> What is there to you doesn't really tell anybody that something is wrong. Something is off in this picture. So if somebody says, my and you just translate it out, what is there to you? It doesn't really signal to you that there's something wrong with this person. Maybe they're ill. They're not feeling well. They're having a tantrum. There's way more going on with that question than what I could possibly translate word for word. And so there's a missing part of that question, what is there to you? And I might add, if I were an English translator, I might say, are you okay? And that would signal to the English reader that something appears to be not okay. And so an ellipsis filling in extra words there isn't always bad. It's like the Targums. Uh, If you're familiar with the Targums, like um, Targum Yonatan, what they're trying to do in the, the first century to Aramaic speakers who to them Hebrew is more a, a language of the Torah and scholarship of the Torah elite maybe, but the the language that everybody is using is going to be Aramaic, very similar but not exact. And so you would have the Aramaic translator, and he would try to explain from the Hebrew into the Aramaic, and that's what a targum is. And so we have English translators. They're trying to tell us what is in the Bible. What is the what is the Hebrew text of the Bible? What is the Greek text of the Bible? Well, here's the danger of translators trying to help you understand an ellipsis. If they have been indoctrinated in a particular way, then in their minds, what is missing must mean this, but maybe it doesn't. So what they will often do is they will try to supply the missing words or a missing explanation based on what's happening in their own experience. So here's an example. If we go to Psalm 14, and we're all familiar with this song, we've heard it a lot. It says, for the music director, a Psalm of David, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Right. Now, I have often, not sometimes, (laughs) I have often heard that particular passage used to refute atheism, to speak back to atheism or to agnosticism, because this is a thing in history, but it has not always been a thing in history. At the time that Psalm 14 was written, how many atheists do you think there were? There weren't atheists at that time in history. Instead, they believed in multiple gods. It wasn't a matter of not believing in gods. It was just believing in everything. <laughs> it's just they, they had no limit to the number of gods they might worship. So using that particular passage and putting it back into the historical context, context number one, that doesn't make any sense. It's, it's not an era of atheism. That's a fairly recent development in history. So, what could it be talking about? Well, if we're explaining it and saying, well, there's, you know, uh it, it's just what it is, then that we might be missing the ellipsis, what can be understood from the context itself. And that's why we say in hermeneutics, context is everything, everything. You can't pull something out of context. So if you say the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, and therefore all atheists are fools, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with. That, but I don't know that I'd go around saying it either because it's out of context. What did the writer intend when he wrote this? Well, you have to keep reading the context. He goes on The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed detestable acts. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of mankind to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together they are corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of injustice not know, who devour my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? For they are in great dread, for God is with a righteous generation. You would put to shame the plan of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. And this is actually the second time in the scripture that there is this passage, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You can go to the other passage and you'll see the exact same context. If you read the whole Psalm, what you realize it's talking about is corrupt people. It's not talking about atheists, it's talking about corrupt people. They're doing detestable things. They're not doing any good. And he calls them workers of injustice. They're taking advantage of the poor. And so in the context, in the proper context, the fool that's being referred to here is not an atheist, even though I would have to agree. But in the context, the fool who has said in his heart is the one who was doing injustice and yet believes he will not be judged. He believes there will be no accountability. So what is the ellipsis? What's missing? What can you understand from the context? That those who do injustice are fools because those who do injustice to the poor, the weak, the needy, somehow in their hearts, they have told themselves, God's not going to judge me for this. He's, you know, and we hear this a lot today. We hear Adonai framed only as as mercy, only as grace, only as love. And he is those things. But he is also justice. He is also jealous and zealous for his people. And especially he hears the cries of the widows, the orphans, and the poor. His ears are open to their cry. And so the fool is actually the one who is saying in his heart, I don't know, he's not going to judge me for mistreating his people. So that's an example of an ellipsis where it wasn't specifically stated, like had it gone on and said, the fool has said, in the fool who does injustice has said in his heart, there is no God, then we wouldn't have a, an ellipsis. But where it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now there's an ellipsis. There's something missing, but it's not really missing. It's in the whole context. It's in the the yardage that surrounds it. It's in the real estate around the verse, if that makes sense. And so I think an example that came up in class last week or this week was in the Gospels, where they're talking about the washings, and so forth. They're, they're talking about various traditions that have to do with washing your hands, washing cups, and so forth before you eat. And then all of a sudden, out of the clear blue sky, the, the scribe at some point in history adds the phrase, and it's usually in italics if you read it in King James, he'll add as if there was some ellipsis, thus Jesus declared all foods clean how do you infer that from the whole context? If you read the whole context of the conversation, it had nothing to do with Yeshua declaring anything on earth clean to put in your mouth. It's totally, it's it's a wrong reading of an ellipsis. It's where the scribe comes in here and says, oh, this is what's missing. It wasn't missing and it was never intended to be in there. And, And that's the great thing about the the manuscript is at least it's in italics, so you, as the reader, know that wasn't in the original manuscripts. It came later; it was added later. So an ellipsis can be very dangerous—be very dangerous. And that's why you don't want to uh, advance those things on your own, advance those readings on your own uh, without lots of good scholarship behind you. Um, that's why you want to be careful about, like, say, the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. Not that it wouldn't apply to an atheist, but that wasn't the original meaning of it. And, you know, you could probably also make a case, you know, if you kept leaping from here to here, the, the atheist, he doesn't believe in God, so therefore he doesn't believe that God will judge him <laughs> because there isn't one. You can make those leaps, but those are just for discussion, I think. I I don't know that it's it's helpful to use that as a you know, a bullet point if you're going to have a conversation with an atheist. That's not really the verse to use because it's not really the proper one. At any rate, that's an example of how translations can go wrong, how our interpretations of scripture can go badly wrong. We might rip it out of the history, out of its historical context. We might rip it out of the, the real estate that it was written in. We might ignore the whole chapter of the psalm, And just say, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We want to take all that yardage around there and make sure that supports what we're saying this means, if that makes sense. All right. So that's some fun for you to play with (laughs) because now you'll go through and you'll start finding lots of ellipses. I guess that's the plural of ellipsis. But the one I want to uh, focus on is the one that went out in the newsletter this week. And the one that went out in the newsletter, it's the twinning principle, the twinning principle. And of course, you know, we're still working with Song of Songs. And now we are to chapter four. And as you're reading chapter four of the Song of Songs, you'll realize, oh, this is much like chapter one and two. We've already covered some of these symbols in chapters one and two. We already know what these symbols mean in prophecy. And so if you've been keeping a glossary of those symbols, you're reading chapter four much more intelligently than you did when you were reading chapter one, because you were building your symbol glossary when you started reading chapter one. So as, as we've gone through and we've said, okay, this is what this means and this is what this means, as long as it fits the context, right? It has to fit in its context. So with Song of Songs, we've got more than than just a love song. We've got prophecy and if chapter one laid a foundational prophecy of understanding how Israel comes up out of the wilderness and the restoration of that relationship with her Messiah as she comes up out of the wilderness, as she comes out of her exile, you've got that foundational understanding. So now in chapter four, we can dig a little deeper. We've got the basics under our belts. Uh, and this is important because, you know, of all books, I think Song of Songs does the best job, just personal preference or personal, you know, it it speaks to me in a way that maybe some of the other prophets don't. But to me, in terms of looking and listening for the footsteps of Messiah, I think the Song of Songs is doing the best job for me at telling me what to look for, showing me how to examine my generation, to match it against what the prophecies are saying. And then raising my hope and my expectation level that Messiah really is just at the door. That the things that are happening in my generation tell me he is right at the door and he can come at any time. And they're a huge encouragement. These prophecies of the Song of Songs, they are a huge encouragement. Because, you know, for two years as we went through the the COVID thing, it was mostly warning, 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 warning. It was serious stuff. It It was grave information. It was, look, hard times are coming. And now we're there. Now we're there. But now we're into the Song of Songs, which is a a very encouraging prophecy to those who they're still out in the wilderness, but they've got the promised land in sight. They feel like they've come out of the the land of great darkness. And now they have seen a great light. They have seen the light of the Torah. The Torah is a light. The commandment is a lamp. And it has really boosted them on their way to the point where now they're ascending, they're starting to come up out of the exile, coming up out of the wilderness, and they've got the promised land in their sights. They they sense that the promise of the fathers really is upon us. So that it's we've gone from very you know austere warnings into a time I think of great encouragement, even though conditions are degenerating. You know the things the the little <laughs> things that started tumbling downhill because of COVID the inflation, you know, the, the deepening political drama, everything that's happening. Nevertheless, we're finding ourselves in a period of encouragement. And I think that's important because when nothing's wrong, when there are no hard times, why do you need encouragement? But now as we begin to walk through, I believe the next few years are going to be successively more difficult. And as we go through those years, I think Song of Songs, we're going to be able to turn back to this, and it's going to be encouragement to us every single step, because I think we'll be able to hear an echoing step of Messiah that says, it's worth it, keep walking. It's worth it, keep walking. Even if you only take one step today, don't stop. Keep walking. So in chapter two of the Song of Songs, we read, uh, until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle be like a gazelle. And we unpacked that. Um, I don't know so much in this Shabbat live stream, but uh, definitely in our in our weekly classes, we unpacked that in depth and we found some symbolic prophetic meanings to the gazelle. But like I said, we, we laid that foundation and now in chapter four, the gazelle is going to come up again. And remember the gazelle is a fast moving animal. And if we think of Messiah, you know, it talks about the days being shortened, that suggests they're going to be fast. And so when Messiah does come, even though it seems like he's just taking forever to get here, when he does appear, he will be like a like a gazelle. And you know how fast a gazelle moves. And it says he's going to this is until the cool of the day when the shadows flee. And the cool of the day is, you know, as as the sun is lower on the horizon, it appears that it moves faster. It appears that the shadows. Uh, disappear faster. They really aren't. <laughs> it, it, the earth is turning at, at just the same speed that it was when the sun was up at, at, in the middle of the sky. But the the feeling, the impression is that things are beginning to move faster. So with the gazelle with that that symbolic meaning of of, of times that appear or feel like they're moving faster that the, the times will be half. And the days will be shortened, right? And you know, we looked at that particularly as it pertained to the feasts. How that for the righteous, if you were keeping the feasts, especially the pilgrimage feasts, it could be that at some point, as you go through your your annual cycle, that you become accustomed to you'll, you'll go into Pesach, you'll move through Shavuot, and eventually you'll you'll get into the seventh month. You'll start moving through Sukkot that somehow, they'll know how it works, one year you will enter into Passover, you will enter into Pesach, and somehow you will be supernaturally in some sort of realm. And it may not feel any different to you. Like the Israelites in the wilderness, they didn't act like anything was different than before, even though great miracles were happening all around them. They got supernatural bread, supernatural water. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out. You know, they're seeing hail. They're seeing fire. They're seeing all this stuff. And they're just acting like it's any other day. Maybe we'll just think it's any other, you know, year. But the suggestion is at some point is like going into this, I don't want to call it time travel, but some sort of last time engagement of going into Pesach. And then we know that that Passover, it's a book into Sukkot. That you'll go in and then you'll be sealed at Shavuot, and then for you it's like it's half a time, and that message is given to the the congregation at Thyatira. You know they're they're warned, and it's the fourth assembly. It, it coincides with Shavuot, the sealing of the saints at Shavuot, and so what's going to happen? Well, you're sealed over until the resurrection at the Feast of Trumpets. But for you, it's already sealed up. It's already a done deal. The understanding is that the Feast of Trumpets and that time of repentance from Rosh Hashanah until Yom Kippur is for the, the lukewarm, is for the, what they call them, the intermediates or the lukewarm, those who really don't have both feet in. For those who have both feet in the kingdom at Shavuot, they're sealed over. And so it's like, for them, half the time of tribulation is... They're not really experiencing that. But the tribulation from that Shavuot until that sukkot is like it's bearing down on them to squeeze them into a place of repentance before the trumpet sounds. And so that's kind of where you get this idea of a time, time and half a time. At any rate, you know, the, the speeding of the time, uh, the shortening of the days or so forth, the perception I'm sure would be is like the cool of the day when the shadows flee, is that somehow the days are being shortened. And it could be that they are being shortened. It's just happening in a different way than we expect. So let's let's look at in chapter four, going back to the gazelle and the shortening of time. Let's just look at a a Bible study technique. And maybe you've noticed it before. And maybe you didn't know there was a name for it or you didn't pay too much attention to it. You just noticed it. Like sometimes we notice things are there, but we don't know what to make of them exactly. In this case, we want to kind of know what to make of it. All right. so if, because if you can see it here, then I'm going to challenge you to find it in other places. And our class had a great time doing this after we shut the recording off after class, and we were free to move about the cabin, so to speak. Just throw ideas out there, and it was a lot of fun because that's when we realized how many times we had read it and didn't really, you know, identify it as a pattern. We just saw it was there. So, if we go to chapter four. Of song of songs. I want you to tune your ear. I want you to listen for things that come in pairs. Things that come in twos come in pairs. So here we go. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. I just heard a pair. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilad. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep which have come up from their watering place, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is beautiful. Your temples are like a slice of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with layers of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. All right. So you heard some pairs in there, some that were very obvious and maybe some that were a little more subtle. Sometimes it's a repetition of a particular phrase. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Well, as you open reading the chapter, the repetition of a phrase is, hey, wait a minute. There's some emphasis here. And often that's what repetition does. It will uh, emphasize something, you know, just like you tell your kids. (laughs) If you tell them twice, you are emphasizing what the curfew is. But these pairs can be for emphasis. And sometimes they can be to suggest there's going to be one fulfillment of this prophecy. And then at a later time, there will be another one that there will be a time where how beautiful you are, my darling, as a prophecy in a particular way. But then at a later time, there will be another time that Israel is beautiful. The next one, the easy one, the newly shorn sheep coming up from their watering place, all of which bear twins. Well, twins are a two, twins too. One that I thought was a little more subtle, your lips are like scarlet thread and your mouth is beautiful. Well, the lips open the mouth. So they're not identical, but they are a pair. One does follow the other. So just keep that filed in the back of your mind. One thing follows the other. This thing opens that thing. And then down toward the the bottom, you have your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, right? Where there's unnecessary repetition, especially we pay attention. And so wouldn't it have been enough just to say your two breasts are like two fawns? But No. There's repetition, twins of a gazelle. And there's our gazelle again, our fast-moving animal. So as we spot these pairs, it's going to remind us of something, of how often in scripture you've seen pairs. And the pairs are called zugot, zugot. In the late Second Temple period, you had famous zugot, or pairs of rabbis. Uh, Sometimes one rabbi's work or teaching complemented the other's. You know, in the, the stories, you're often seeing these two rabbis walk together having a conversation. Sometimes they weren't friendly. <laughs> Sometimes they antagonized each other. <laughs> but they were still a pair of a particular generation. And if if you know anything about the schools of Shammai and Hillel, they were still considered zagot. They were a pair, even though they were their interpretations and applications of Scripture were often quite different. You know, one being much more stringent the school of Shammai, one being much more graceful, the house of uh, Hillel, still Zagot, they were pears. Uh, who in the Bible? Well, in a similar vein, you've got uh, in Nehemiah, you've got them returning to rebuild the temple after the Babylonian exile, one complementing the work of the other. And in, 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 in some places in history, they haven't really separated the two books, Of Ezra and Nehemiah. They were really considered one book because they were such a pair. Go back into the Torah. You've got the work of Joshua and Caleb. Uh, They were zagot. They were a pair. They weren't necessarily identical, but they complemented the work of the other. Again, you can go back through the Torah and you can find other examples. But the question is, why is it important? Why do you need to recognize pairs of things? Well, just the very text of the scripture, when it goes to all the trouble to use these repetitions or to give you examples of things working in pairs, then if it's a biblical pattern, then it's one we need to understand. It's not random. It could have been written any way in the world, but it was written, these passages were going to be written in just this way. So we want to learn to start spotting twins or pairs or in some cases uh, we might call them equivalent expressions that's another word of hermeneutics that if you had a hermeneutics textbook you would learn that an equivalent expression where one term or phrase is similar to the other like your two breasts are like two fawns twins of a gazelle they're not identical but they're equivalent the torah is a light the commandment is a lamp are they identical no are they equivalent absolutely and so it's it's one way that the scripture has of defining itself internally within the text it's giving you its own dictionary within the text itself and so it's going to help you if you can find an equivalent expression like the torah is a light the commandment is a lamp if you match that up to your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Now you've got a whole string of equivalent expressions like Torah, word, commandment. Now you realize you're talking about, oh, these are equivalent. They're not identical. Each one has its own specific identity, but they're equivalent. And that helps you. If you're reading words somewhere over here, does that say, well, the word's not the same as the Torah. Somebody might try to tell you, oh, yeah, oh, contraire. (laughs) They are equivalent expressions. hermeneutical principle, educate yourself. And so, I mean, you don't want to be flippant with people like that, but there's, there's just this little shot of joy when you figure out how the text works. And now you're more on the inside than the outside, trying to figure out what in the world does this mean? Now you've got a better shot at figuring out how these things relate to one another. Okay. And, and by the way, you know, as we went through the study we found out that the Song of Songs was not quite as racy as we thought once we learned what the symbols meant, because when we learned, you know, the breasts of two fawns, when we realized, oh my goodness, that's representing the two tablets of the Torah, not as racy as we thought it was to begin with. And as you unpack some of this stuff, it's just opening up new layers of understanding. But the idea here, when you see a pair, when you see the zugot, When you see the twins, when you see equivalent expressions, it's trying to show you how the first opens up the second. One opens the other. You know how in scripture, when it's talking about, um, you know, redeeming the firstborn, um, dedicating the firstborn, it'll say, he who opens the womb. In other words, the firstborn male, the one who opens the womb. And we get kind of carried away thinking about all the special privileges that the firstborn gets and all the obligations that the firstborn gets. But the idea there is he opens the womb for the subsequent children. He's the first, but he's preparing the way for the next. Even though the emphasis is on the first, it's simply the preparation. And it may be something that comes after that has more preeminence. So. The firstborn has a, a preeminence in itself in the natural realm. Just by virtue of opening the womb and being the first, there's a, a special obligation and privilege p- placed upon that child. But as we find out, it might be a secondborn child, like a Jacob, who actually has more preeminence in the spiritual realm. And so it's not like the firstborn gets all the goodies. He gets all the blessings and, you know, every all, all the other kids just have to kind of like you know, settle down and eat bread and water. You know, it's, no, the firstborn may actually open the way for a great accomplishment of the subsequent children. And one prepares the way for the next. It opens the way for the next. That can apply to people, like the firstborn opening the womb. It can apply to commandments. You might have some commandments that appear in pairs, kind of in twins, where one commandment will open the way to the second. And often it does apply to people. In scripture, there were certain zugot or pairs who were sent out because they worked well together. Paul and Silas, they worked well together. They didn't necessarily work well with others. (laughs) Sometimes they didn't work and play well with others, which made them a great pair. But this was the pattern. Often you will have two ministers who complement the work of the other. One of the examples I use, some of you can remember a decade or two or three ago, maybe not three, we won't say three, that will show our age, right? Let's just say a decade or two ago, you remember Brad Scott and Bill Cloud, when they did a lot of team teaching, they would go to different places, conferences, so forth, and they would teach together, they weren't in a competition with one another. They were complementing the teaching of the other. And if if you've ever seen a pair team teaching, what you'll notice is very frequently, they will have different personalities or study methods. And what that's doing is adding exponentially the number of students you can reach because students have different learning and listening styles. Sometimes I need to have something in my hand when I listen, if I'm learning, if I'm just trying to tune in my ears, then I need something to do with my hands. It helps if I have a pen or pencil, something to write with in my hand. And I'll remember more than just sitting there staring at the speaker, because then I'll get distracted. If I'm just looking at the person talking, I'll very easily become distracted. Some people are just the opposite. They they can't have any other distraction. They can't have anything in their hands that might distract them. They just have to focus in on the words. And it's okay. It doesn't mean one's bad, one's good, better, worse, doesn't matter. But you have to figure out what your learning style is and uh, focus on what you need to do to maximize how well you can, you know, hear the teaching. But in this case, you know, we, we had Brad and Bill working together, you know, Brad was a little more outgoing. He could make you laugh. What was he doing? He'd open up. He'd come out first and he would open up. He'd get people laughing. He'd get them to relax. And then Bill could come in and he could drop in some seeds of of deeper teaching. And then Brad can come back in. and, And now he's a little more serious. And he can drop in some seeds of deeper teaching. And so it doesn't mean that, you know, one is lightheaded and, and one is heavy. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that their styles complement. And it means that they're maximizing the number of students that they can reach, either through learning or listening styles. And, and so they they truly augment one another. And it's it's a cyclical style. It's not open and closed. And it works very well for some people. Some people make great team teachers because they're not really too caught up in competition or trying to out-teach somebody or outdo somebody or you know get more likes or hearts or stars or whatever it is you get. They're not into that, they're into the Word. And doing whatever it takes to maximize how much seed of the Word can be planted in others is gonna bear fruit. So it can be people. It can be the Pauls and Silas's. It can be the brads and the bills. You can go back in scripture, and I'm going to challenge you to go back and find some here in a bit, but there's other kinds of pairs, like in the commandments, think of the two goats on Yom HaKippurim. The first goat, his blood, his atonement blood in the Holy of Holies opened the way so that this other goat can carry away the sin. So you needed both. You needed the blood atonement, and then you needed the carrying away of the sin when you brought sin sacrifices to the temple often you brought other types of sacrifices to accompany you might start out with a sin sacrifice and then you might bring say a peace offering right and so those two sacrifices the sin sacrifice would open the way for the acceptance or the you know for that second sacrifice to accomplish what it was going to accomplish there were two altars there was an altar of sacrifice and there was altar of incense but you couldn't get to the altar of incense If you bypass the altar of sacrifice, the altar of sacrifice opened the way because it supplied the coals to the altar of incense. One commandment opened the other. And then uh, one time, and I cannot tell you the book where I read it. I wish I could, but I've read too many books at this point. (laughs) But I remember it stood out to me at the time because I didn't understand the statement. And the statement was everything that happened to Messiah happens to Israel. And this was actually an Orthodox text. I remember that much. And that surprised me. The statement surprised me because it wasn't where I expected to read something like that. But it was very consistent. And I think that's why it stood out because I could go to the B'chadasha. I could go to the New Testament and say, well, there's another pair. I don't like to call it the Old Testament, but you've got the Tanakh. And then you've got the Renewed Covenant. You've got the Original Testament and you've got the Renewed Testament. One opens the way to understanding the other. But like I said, that statement stood out to me because Yeshua and the apostles taught their disciples that they would also have to suffer. They would have to take up their crosses. In some cases, they would literally die for the good news of the kingdom. And so in that sense, Yeshua opened the way. He's like the firstborn. And then Israel follows in his footsteps. So they are a kind of zugot. They're a kind of a pair. What Yeshua did, we're gonna have to do too. He opened the way so that the world could receive those who would follow him and proclaim him as the sin sacrifice, who would proclaim the good news. Through his death and resurrection, he opens the way for people like us to go and proclaim the good news. We'll flip back. We'll do some more commandments. Think of the mitzvah of the tefillin, which, you know, you shall place them, you know, on your arm, on your hand, on your fingers, at at different places in scripture. Where are you supposed to put the commandments? Arm, hand, fingers. And that's why when you see you know Jewish men wrapping tefillin, that they'll go all the way from the bicep down to the fingers. They cover every part of it that's mentioned. But they'll first place the shell yad on. It's it goes on your arm first. And of course, the little box with the commandments faces towards your heart. What's happening? It's reminding the person that's putting it on that he needs to prepare his heart for the deeds of obedience that the hand will do. The heart will open the hand. But then again, you've got two boxes. You can see the the zugot in a different way. First, you put on the the yad, the tefillin that go on the arm. And then you put on the rosh. And what's going to happen? It's on your head. It's going to help you understand your obedience. Remember, in the Shema, we say we will do and we will hear which means obey and understanding. Sometimes you have to do before you can hear. And so you put on the show, yeah, it says okay. He says to keep the Sabbath, I'm going to do it. I may not understand everything about it. That will come. That will take your whole lifetime, understanding Shabbat. But first you start doing it. One, doing it opens the way for the next, understanding it, which will build on itself over time. You don't wait until you understand it. You do it and then you will understand it. And that's what it's saying this prepared heart it's going to open the way for the mind to grasp the spiritual depth of that commandment. And you can see the twins, you can see the twins of the gazelle even in the Shema. It says you shall teach them diligently to your children, right? Okay. So here's a pair. You shall talk of them or you shall speak of them when you sit in your house. And that's going to open the way to when you walk by the way. And then, when you lie down, opens the way to when you rise up. See how it's working in pairs. You do this one, and it'll lead to this one. You do this one, and it'll open up this one. Go all the way back to the first couple. Adam, open the way to Eve. Think of Hebron. Hebron is uh, the city is called Kiryat Arba. Kiryat Arba means city of four. For what? For pairs. Four Zugot. <laughs> there's, there's four couples thought to be buried there. We know about Abraham and Sarah. We know about Isaac and Rebekah. And we know about Jacob and Leah. That's three pairs. Who's the fourth pair? Well, according to the tradition, they wanted to be buried there because Adam and Eve were also already buried in that cave, which once it was complete, then it explained why it was the city of four. And so not only did you have Adam opening the way to Eve, You've got Abraham opening the way for Sarah. You've got Isaac for Rebecca, Jacob for Leah. Elijah opened up double miracles to Elisha. John the Baptist opened the way for Yeshua. But go back even before they were born. Someone brought this up. Before they were even born, what happens? Elizabeth opens the way for Miriam. She gets pregnant with Yohanan, and then she opens that way in obedience. I mean, the beautiful songs of prophecy that these women are uttering in the Gospels. And what happens? It opens the way for Yeshua. And then even when the two boys grew up, Yochanan was opening the way for Yeshua. He was baptizing, and then Yeshua was baptizing. Then Yeshua, in Mark 6, 7, he started selecting these disciples that he's going to send out in pairs. What are they going to do? They're going to go ahead of him, and they're going to open the way. So, I hope that helps. And even in if we go back to Elijah, and we start reading in places like Revelation, we read about two witnesses. They they will arrive in a pair at the end of days when we hear the footsteps of Messiah. The tradition tells us that Elijah, Eliyahu, will arrive 3 days before King Messiah. He will arrive and herald King Messiah 3 days before his actual arrival. So how will we know what Elijah looks like? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know exactly, but still there's this idea that what's happening is happening in pairs. Even, um, I, I would love to have a discussion about Martha and Mary, you know, the discussion of studying with Yeshua, studying the word versus serving others who are studying the word, how one can open the way to the other, but you can do this. This is, this is really easy and if you'll practice a little bit, you'll start to see it on your own study time. And that's my goal is for you to learn the tools, especially as they pertain to prophecy, so that when you study on your own, that you can begin to find these things. Uh, they, will, they will come from the inside instead of somebody else teaching them to you. You now have the paradigm and you can start to, to find these things on your own and then show others how to do it. Because once you figure out how to do it, they can figure out from you, you can teach them. So you can practice. There's so many examples, like Romans 11:16. 16. Remember, in the Torah, we're told to separate some of the challah from the loaf to give to the Levite. Well, if we separate that little lump of challah, what happens? Well, Romans 11:16 tells us the whole lump gets holy. <laughs> if this is holy, if the holy piece goes to the Levite, then the whole loaf is holy. This little piece opens the way to this, the whole love. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook and our YouTube channel.